This is Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyal Law School professor Jessica Levinson. I'm joined today by the show's co-host, Joe Armstrong, and we're going to do a legal and political roundup. Joe, take us away. What are we focusing on today? Hello, Jessica. We are indeed going to be talking about some stories from the week. There were some developments from the House Select Committee on January 6th that involved Steve Bannon, the former advisor to the former president. And we've got some preliminary recommendations from the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court Reform to discuss. So, Jessica, as you may remember, in a recent episode of Passing Judgment, we talked about the ongoing investigation into the insurrection at the Capitol from January 6th earlier this year and how former President Trump informed former members of his administration to claim executive privilege and refused to honor congressional subpoenas from the House committee investigating that event. There's been some movement on an issue this week involving Steve Bannon, who was an advisor to the early Trump administration. Can you please fill us in on the details here? Yes, but first, I appreciate you saying, as you may remember, because we, of course, were the ones to talk about it, and it was about less than a week ago, but such is our lives lately, kind of in the middle of kind of trying to come out of a pandemic. And as somebody said to me recently, is it Tuesday or is it December? It is, in fact, still October, and we are recording this episode on a Friday. And here we go to answer your question, Joe. And I like to call this kind of latest development an episode in the show, Steve Bannon versus the law. And like previous episodes, the punchline here is that Bannon may have a weak legal argument, but still come out on top. And see, for example, let's say season one, when President Trump pardoned Steve Bannon, who was at that point under investigation for, wait for it, allegedly defrauding Trump's own supporters out of campaign donations. So in the lead up to the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, Bannon as we said, a former aide to Trump acknowledged telling him, quote, we are going to kill it in the crib, kill the Biden presidency in the crib. Now, when you make a statement like that, you better believe that the House Select Committee investigating January 6th is going to want to talk to you. He was ordered to testify Thursday before this House Select Committee. Instead, much like the title character in Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot, we never see Bannon. He fails to show. So that's basically, that was the big development. Okay, so Bannon doesn't show, and what are the repercussions for not doing so? So there actually may be real repercussions in this case. Bannon's decision to defy the congressional subpoena, a congressional subpoena that I view as valid, is why the House Select Committee has said We're going to meet on Tuesday, October 19th, and we're going to vote on referring Bannon for federal criminal contempt charges. Now, given the makeup of the committee, given the fact that they've set this vote at all, I think we know that they will, in fact, vote in favor of referring this matter to the Department of Justice to prosecute Bannon for federal criminal contempt charges. But of course, that's not the end of the story. So after the House Select Committee votes, then this matter goes to a vote of the full House. We don't know when they would vote, but given the makeup of the House, we think they also would vote to refer this matter to the Department of Justice. Then what happens? Then it's up to the Department of Justice to make an independent assessment as to whether or not they want to prosecute Bannon for failing to comply with this subpoena, which again would be a federal criminal contempt charge. 
All right, so setting aside jokes about watching full house reruns, 80s sitcoms, what about the real world outside the chambers of Congress? How would this actually play out in reality or outside of an 80s sitcom? So it's going to take a long time. And that's really the name of the game here when it comes to Trump and his allies and how they've responded to congressional subpoenas, or we should say how they've not responded to congressional subpoenas, which is what we've seen is that you can have a losing legal argument. And I think Bannon does have a losing legal argument here. But if your strategy is to run out the clock, then listen to what we just detailed, right? The House Select Committee is going to vote. Then the full House is going to vote. Then the Department of Justice is going to make a determination. And then, of course, if they do file charges, Bannon is not going to say, oh, you're right. He's going to fight those charges. And he's going to drag out that litigation. So all of this means you can win with still having a losing legal argument, at least in my opinion. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about the timeline, how it may take a while to go. But we all know that Steve Bannon, he's a very, very savvy political operator. What are the actual basis of his legal claims here? What are his positions? Yeah, so this is a little bit of what we talked about. I'm going to refer people to our last episode where we focus a bit more on executive privilege and subpoenas. And Bannon is basically saying, I also have executive privilege here. And he's saying he's covered kind of piggybacking off of Trump's claim of executive privilege. So President Trump has said the documents that the House Select Committee is asking for, they're covered by executive privilege. And then he told his former aides, who were also subpoenaed, don't answer. And so what happens here is Bannon is in really, I think, a strange place because he's asserting executive privilege based on and piggybacking off of Trump's weak argument. Now, why is it particularly weak when it comes to Bannon? He wasn't even in the White House when all of the discussions in the lead up to January 6th were happening. He left the White House in 2017, which for all of you following along at home, is four years before 2021. Now, the other thing is, if you're trying to base your claim on somebody else's, you want them to have a strong claim. But the Biden White House has already said, uh, President Trump, you know, we're not really seeing your claim of executive privilege here. So for Donald Trump, when it comes to executive privilege, it is not turtles all the way down. So, Jessica, like you said, we talked about these concepts a bit on a previous episode of Passing Judgment. Remind us what the White House counsel has said in retort. Yeah. So I just basically finished saying, you know, Trump himself doesn't have that strong of an argument when it comes to executive privilege, at least over these documents. So let's again read from that letter from White House counsel Dana Ramos. So the letter says, Congress is examining an assault on our Constitution and democratic institutions provoked and fanned by those sworn to protect them. And the conduct under investigation extends far beyond typical deliberations concerning the proper discharge of the president's constitutional responsibilities. And now wait for it. I think this is, in my mind, this is the money line. The constitutional protections of executive privilege should not be used to shield from Congress or the public information that reflects a clear and apparent effort to subvert the Constitution itself which maybe is another way of saying don't try and use the Constitution when you're undermining the Constitution. Yeah, them's fighting words, as we used to say in the playground. So when we talked about this before, Jessica, you said that the strength or weakness of Bannon's legal arguments 
actually might not matter. And remind us why that is. Right. So we just talked about this a little bit, but I think it's worth emphasizing, which is all of this is going to take a long time, right? The select committee votes, then the House votes, then the Department of Justice makes the determination, then Bannon fights the Department of Justice if they do file charges. And the problem here, of course, is that the House Select Committee has said, we want to ramp up by early spring. That was the last quote. They said by early spring. And I just don't see how this process can play out in the courts before early spring. I don't see how you're going to get Bannon in front of the congressional committee um, with enough time based on their self-imposed timeline. And, you know, it's, I think for a lot of people, they can think about it's the toddler who throws a tantrum because he doesn't want to go to, you know, fill in the blank, the doctor. And the tantrum goes on so long that the doctor's appointment passes and you end up not going. I mean, that is not to make light of it because the issues are so serious, but it feels like that's the kind of daily life for some families equivalent of what's going on here. All right. So taking the toddler metaphor and blending a little bit of the sports metaphor in here, running out the clock, Jessica, this seems like a very familiar situation. Remind me where we've seen these kinds of delay tactics before. Yes. So we've seen this movie before. We've seen this show before. And let's think back to the first, not the second. Let's think back to the first impeachment of former President Trump, where certain witnesses stonewalled. And specifically, who should we be focusing on here? John Bolton, the former National Security Advisor, Mick Mulvaney, the former acting chief of staff. In both cases, they basically said to House Democrats, yeah, you're going to have to try and get to us in court. Now, there was a parallel case going on. The legality of it is a little bit more complicated and just in the sense that they were basically saying, we're waiting to hear on what the judge says in another case. But they said, we're not coming. And at least until that. And House Democrats have said, well, we don't want this to drag on forever. We're facing an election. And basically, let's just wrap this up without hearing from John Bolton and Mick Mulvaney, which is, of course, in a way, rewarding the toddler for the tantrum because they don't, in fact, have to testify. Okay, Jessica, frustrating, I think. Before we move on, just please tell me, why on earth does it take so long to hold people accountable in our governmental system? Well... (laughs) I know. That's such a big question. And I'll try and take just a chunk out of it, which is this could actually go faster. So Congress does have something called inherent contempt authority or inherent contempt power where they could say to the sergeant in arms, "Okay, go get Steve Bannon and detain him or arrest him. Now, Congress hasn't used that power in at least a century, and I don't think they will again. And part of the reason it takes so long is because I think of our expectations about norms. Our expectation used to be you're served with a valid congressional subpoena. You maybe argue about exactly how many documents you're going to provide or when you'll show up or which questions you're going to answer. But it doesn't typically used to be the case that you just were like, "Mm, no, I don't think so. You know, like it's a brunch invitation. I'm just going to opt out. So part of this is that we don't have systems in place for people who break those norms. And we don't want to break, I think, another norm, which is for Congress to use its inherent contempt authority. You know, there's a whole host of other reasons. And obviously, in a lot of ways, we don't want 
to just speed up the legal process and not provide people with due process. But in so many ways, I think we're seeing that the Trump administration really didn't prepare us for our old way of doing things, which is essentially to assume that people would at least in some way comply with valid subpoenas. So moving on to our next topic, Jessica, and that is a big one. It's Supreme Court reform. Ebbs and flows in terms of its popularity and our culture. But this one is caused by the shadow of the former administration, because just in one presidential term, the former president, Donald Trump, got three Supreme Court picks onto the bench. Now, one of those was after Mitch McConnell shenanigans and not allowing Barack Obama's pick for a seat on the bench to even be considered in the Senate. He ran out the clock in his own way. This prompted the Biden administration to form something called the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court of the United States. That is comprised of 36 bipartisan members with areas of expertise that range from legal scholars, former federal judges, advocates for reform, and culled from the disciplines of con law, history, and political science. The goal, Jessica, and this is directly from the White House website, quote, is to provide an analysis of the principal arguments in the contemporary public debate for and against Supreme Court reform, including an appraisal of the merits and legality of particular reform proposals. Biden talked about creating a commission of this nature during his campaign after the new solid 6-3 conservative majority prompted calls by many Democrats to increase the number of justice on the bench. Now that's called colloquially court packing. Worthy of note is that these are preliminary findings and that the commission won't submit its final data to the White House until mid-November. Also under consideration are term limits for justices and other rules that determine the functioning of the court. Some critics have said that the commission is merely an attempt to maintain cohesion in the Democratic Party by appeasing the more liberal elements of the party. But first, let's talk about what happened this week, Jessica. What was the movement on this? So there were some basically very preliminary kind of recommendations, almost recommendations. It felt a little bit more like a pro and con list. But what I will say, backing up a second, is that if you wanted to create a commission where you could say, look, I had the best and the brightest in a room, and they looked at all these issues, and then kind of in my mind have cover to say, and they came to the conclusion that we're not going to do anything, you would create a commission somewhat like this one in the sense that the people on this commission are incredibly impressive. They have sterling resumes. But it's not necessarily a group, in part based on differing opinions, in part based on who they are, where you think what they're going to come out with is just a big, bold agenda of reforms that we're going to try and implement very quickly. I think this is a group, again, where President Biden can say, we took a really serious look at this, and there really isn't much for us to do here, folks. So what they came out with this week is their kind of very preliminary, semi-non-recommendations. All right. So whether it happens or not, let's talk about two of the issues on the table, and they are membership and size of the court and term limits. We'll revisit and summarize the entirety of the subject in November on an upcoming episode. Those are things like jurisdiction stripping, emergency orders, codes of conduct, and some other specifics about how the courtroom functions in practice, in reality. We talked about reality before. First up, Jessica, is the size of the court and what kind of people are wearing those robes. This is the court packing aspect of the conversation, and it seems to get most of the headlines. What's going on here? Yeah, so this is, I think, the thing that we talked about most probably in the presidential election, where a lot of Democrats, I think, understandably felt like, okay, President Trump, who was not 
popularly elected. He certainly won the 2016 election, but didn't even get the most votes, has just appointed a third of the Supreme Court. We need to try and counteract that by expanding the number of justices. And what the commission said here is, look, Congress does have the power to increase or decrease the size of the court. And there are some benefits here. Maybe you get more diverse members. Maybe you can decide more cases, spend more time on emergency appeals. And then they said, you know, but there's also things that we need to look at, like the long-term effects, that it could be perceived as partisan, and the court is already so polarized. So it really was, as I said, kind of a on the one hand, on the other hand, This isn't obviously a full-throated, yes, we absolutely should expand the court, which I think some activists may have been hoping for, but again, not realistic when you look at this particular commission. Okay, then the next consideration is term limits for Supreme Court justice. This one also gets a lot of play in the media. The average age of the nine justices is currently at about 64 and a half years, but Jessica was significantly older before the new three Trump justices were seated. Currently at 83, Justice Stephen Breyer is the oldest justice, and Clarence Thomas, who is 73, will have been on the bench for 30 years as of next week. Critics say that the court runs the risk of being out of touch with these lifetime appointments, and the average length of time a justice serves is just under 17 years, which is less than 30, I suppose. But uh, what are they recommending in terms of this with those preliminary findings? Yeah. So again, not really recommending. The first thing they said is that Congress may or may not have the power to change from lifetime appointment to term limits. It could take a constitutional amendment. I think I'm probably in the camp of it would take a constitutional amendment. And they said, look, the benefits are the public is in favor of term limits. It could hit the proper balance between judicial independence, but still having a court that's maybe more responsive to the public and where the public sentiment is at any given time. On the other hand, they said unintended consequences. So again, kind of the same thing on the one hand, on the other hand, and I don't think anything's going to come of this. All right. Well, we'll find out a little bit more in November and we'll devote a whole episode to figuring out what will or will not happen. Maybe maybe nothing will, but uh, it's worth talking about either way. But Jessica, before we wrap this up today, a story caught my eye this week that instantly made me think of you. It made me think of our podcast and our discussions that we have on here. And it made me wildly interested to hear your take. It goes like this. On Wednesday of this week, Justice Sonia Sotomayor was speaking at an event hosted by the New York University School of Law. Among her comments, were revelations that the court has undergone some changes in oral arguments in the last few years, and that these changes were prompted by data that show that the female justices were interrupted disproportionately more than the male justices. And that's both by the male justices themselves, as well as male lawyers arguing before the court. Jessica, I can't say I was surprised, but it did get my rough up. So what are your thoughts here? (laughs) That's such a funny expression. So Um, Yeah, to the surprise of everybody who's ever been in a room where there are some people who tend to interrupt a lot, and sometimes those people tend to be men. And look, obviously, this isn't just something that happens in the Supreme Court. Let's point to a lot of rooms in uh, government halls, government offices, and private businesses throughout the country. But I think really an amazing takeaway here is that Chief Justice John Roberts said, okay, we need to do something about this. So in the face of this evidence, he said, let's change things up. Now, you know, what do I think about this in general? It 
has been, in my mind, actually very helpful to see the Supreme Court implement changes that they made during COVID when they basically live streamed on audio, audio only, the oral arguments, because it wasn't just justices kind of talking over each other. And it was sometimes a little difficult, in part because the Supreme Court obviously still doesn't give us video of the oral arguments always to follow who just said that and what was the follow-up. And it was frustrating because it was difficult sometimes to follow a thread through because the advocates were interrupted so often. And then, of course, there was the frustrating aspect of it where, yes, it does seem like men are doing a disproportionate amount of the interrupting. But from my perspective, I do have to say, really, the one of the big frustrating parts is it didn't feel like advocates could ever get into a groove. Now, on the other hand, some longtime Supreme Court watchers have said, well, no, when you stop that old kind of free-for-all, then it actually hinders the ability of the members of the court to follow up on each other's ideas, that it becomes artificial and stilted. I guess what I would say is just as an audience member from, you know, a long ways away where I can't obviously be in the courtroom on any sort of regular basis, it's a lot easier for me for it to be somewhat artificially stilted and, you know, to be able to hear from the justices and hear the advocates have a little bit more time to respond to the questioning. All right. So some of those changes were in fact implemented, but is it too soon to tell if those changes have made any kind of difference in terms of these interruptions? Um, so it's a little too soon. I will say that the court has basically carried over some of its old practices, again, that it implemented during COVID when all of the oral arguments were basically on the phone when we were on a conference call with the justices. So lawyers have two minutes at the beginning of their argument to make opening remarks. Those are now without interruption. And then, um, the justices begin questioning. And once the attorney's time for argument has ended, here's the kind of addition, each justice then has the time to ask questions in order of seniority, beginning with the chief justice. So it used to be just, you know, opening arguments, and then there's this free for all. Now it's kind of a sandwich. Opening arguments, you have uninterrupted two minutes, then we have the free-for-all, and then we go in order of seniority. So, of course, it's too soon to make sweeping conclusions about how these changes will affect the court. But, in fact, we already know I think it's benefited a male member of the court. It's benefited Justice Clarence Thomas. We started hearing from him during COVID when oral arguments were um, on the phone, and I think everybody, the first time this happened, thought the chief justice was going to go in order of seniority. He would ask his questions, and then he would say Justice Thomas, and Justice Thomas would say pass. And instead, there's Justice Thomas with a ton of questions and really the ability to shape uh, the tone and direction of the arguments. And he has continued thus far to ask questions in a way that he never did before, thanks to this new kind of hybrid approach. So for me, again, it takes the kind of best of both worlds by creating this hybrid approach, and it's easier to understand. So you don't have to have the transcript open on one window and then, you know, listening to the audio in another. 
All right, Jessica. So in this case, the moral of the story is that change is at least possible in some regards without a constitutional amendment. But before we get out of here, Jessica, there's one more topic. This involves the former president, that former President Donald Trump will have to give a deposition about an event that occurred in September of 2015. This was before he was in the White House. A group of protesters with Mexican lineage allege that they were assaulted outside of Trump Tower in New York City after then-candidate Trump made comments that referred to Mexican immigrants as criminals and rapists. We all remember those comments. It seems rare to have a former president sit for a deposition. Jessica, am I right on this? Well, it is rare, but in part because they're not always sued for things like this. And I'm not saying that the suit proves liability here, but obviously... Uh, former President Trump has been involved in a lot more litigation, uh, I would say, than some of our recent occupants of the Oval Office. So it is somewhat rare. As you said, this is a New York State civil lawsuit is brought by these protesters, and they claim that his security guards assaulted them and uh, violently attacked them, uh, destroying their signs, and that obviously amounted to assault and that it infringed on their First Amendment rights to protest because they were on a public sidewalk. So this case has been dragging on for a long time. Back in 2019, when President Trump was still president, he said, no, I can't sit for a deposition, executive privilege. And the court said, no, we don't think so for a whole host of reasons. Um, One of them being, of course, that these events occurred before the president was, in fact, the president. So, you know, we'll see if this deposition testimony ever sees the light of day. And frankly, until former President Trump actually sits down for this deposition, I'm not totally sure it's going to happen. There have been a lot of delays in this case, but we will keep you posted. Joe, we covered a lot of territory. We did Steve Bannon, House Select Committee, Supreme Court, and Trump's deposition. So I think that does it for this week. Yes, Jessica, it is the harvest season that was what we refer to as a cornucopia of topics. So thank you for covering all of them with your usual aplomb. Thank you, Joe. You can find Jessica on Twitter and Instagram at Levinson Jessica. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and elsewhere at In-Depth Day. The show can be found on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Thank you ever so much for listening, everyone. Have a wonderful day and a great weekend.